What is philanthropy? Donations to good causes. The love of mankind. Preventing and solving social problems. Six-figure gifts. Giving of your time, talent, and treasure. If you ask a million people, you will get a million answers. And that is the root of many of the problems inherent in the philanthropic sector. If we are not on the same page about what it is, how can we expect to move forward towards a common goal? Hi, my name is Monique and I am a BIPOC fundraiser with over 15 years of experience. I am Valerie and I'm a white fundraiser with 10 years of experience. Each month, our goal is to dive into different aspects of the philanthropic sector from our varying perspectives to discuss how the sector can move forward beyond our current state to get on the same page and truly make a difference in our organizations and communities. Whether you're a nonprofit leader, a foundation manager, or a donor looking to evolve your practice, we're here to offer insights and actionable advice to help you move beyond philanthropy. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond Philanthropy. We did a quick survey on LinkedIn, and the topic that you all were most interested in is board engagement. And uh, that is exactly what we're here to talk about today. So lucky for you, you're going to get to hear exactly what you were hoping to hear. So we are going to talk about board engagement, board development, board inclusion, board giving, all the things. And I think especially now, those things are of of interest. It's been about a year mm -hmm. since the murder of George Floyd. And I know a lot of nonprofits have been doing work on diversity and diversifying their boards and being more inclusive in general. So I know it's a it's a hot topic, but do you have any thoughts to kind of kick us off, Monique? I think that, you know, I, I am quick to say I am not a DEI expert, um, but it's interesting. I had a conversation with a nonprofit recently and I asked them about diversity in their board and they said, yeah, you know, we make sure that we have people represented of all different industries. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was still people who can write big checks. Um, but it was like, oh, we make sure we have lawyers and doctors. And I'm like, that's not really what diversity of a board means. That's, that's one definition that's, of diversity. That is one definition of diversity, but that is also the definition of diversity for the last whatever many years of this traditional philanthropy, right? Like you always want to make sure you've got the lawyers on your board so that you can hit up the law firms and a doctor so you can hit up the medical. Like that's always been a, a plan, a ploy um, to make sure dollars are coming in. But I think that, you know, when we come to diversity within boards now, it is not just the racial diversity either. It is making sure that you are including lived and learned experience in your board and the diversity within that. You know, are you including members of the actual community that you're serving? Are you including partners that work in the communities that you're serving? Are you including alumni and people that you've actually served on your committee, right? Because whether it is just a, an actual committee within the board or a part of the board itself, you need to make sure that the people who are governing really understand what it takes to move that organization in the communities that they're impacting. I agree. Uh, I know a lot of people use that diversity of industry <laughs> as a way of saying that their board is diverse. I think um, a lot of nonprofits will use diversity of gender and say, well, they're not all men. So, you know, we're, we're doing okay. Or, um, you know, they're not all old, uh, age diversity is another thing. Right. 
Um, so there's, there's many different ways to achieve diversity on your board, but I do think one of the important ways to do that is to include people who actually understand what you're doing. So they have lived experience, they've learned experience, they have direct ties to what you do in some way. Um, I think that's where we as fundraisers run into conundrums, um, especially if the kind of from the top down management is that it needs to be people who have deep pockets. Um, there's always that worry that, you know, they're, they're not equal board members in some way, you know, mm -hmm. like there are the people who give and they're full board members. And then there's the people who can't give. So they're not tech, like they're almost looked at as, you know, like secondary and not full board members. Yeah. And, you know, first of all, it's a lie that people who have gone through your programs can't give. <laughs> um, right. I think there's, there's that aspect of it. And then there's the aspect of, you know, what, what somebody with deep pockets is giving might just be money. Like they might just write a check once a year and then completely check out of the process and, and still be able to call themselves a board member. And then there's the people who really understand what you're doing and they have input where input is needed and they have insights and they have information that they can, they can create partnerships and they can create connections. Mm -hmm. There there's so much more that, you know, you can provide beyond money when you're on a board. And if you're just looking for people who can give money, you're missing the richness of everything else that you could be getting, not just from people with lived experience, but from the people with deep pockets too. Like who's to say that they don't have valuable input that, you know, could help your board or help your organization move along. But if you never ask and you never give those opportunities, right. then you'll never know. Um, so, so yeah, I have, clearly I have a lot of thoughts. About <laughs> so you brought up giving and I think that, you know, when I typically engage a board around giving, I use a board commitment form mm -hmm. and that form is, so I guess let's take it back a step further. A lot of organizations have this debate between give and get, give or get, give and or get. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that when you're looking at who's writing those checks or looking at who's the difference and who's better and who's a real and not real, you're, you're doing, at least there's a, a mandatory give, right? Because if I can get, if I can't write a check, but I can get a check just as big, then what, it doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that when you're looking at a board commitment form, I think there should be minimums, but there should be give and or get. And that is something that you work with each person individually to understand that is not an open conversation because that's when that discrepancy of who can do what comes along. When you're at the table, everybody should be on equal footing. And you have those conversations in private, but also like that, get, that can be a million different things. Like, okay, so maybe I don't know people with big pockets, but I can do these different fundraisers. I can do these different things over here and I can get that minimum for you and make those connections, as you said. So I think that when, when you're engaging a board, the first thing I do at the beginning of every year, January or whatever the beginning of your fiscal year is, is to sit down with each individual board member and have that conversation. What are you able to actually give and or get? What events are you able to support, whether attending or getting people to attend? And just generally, what are your thoughts on how we can further this organization programmatically that you can participate in? Are you tutoring? Are you, are you mentoring? Like, what are you doing? Because it has to go beyond just the dollar. Absolutely. I've seen um, or I've used uh, the cycle of fundraising as kind of a way of identifying the different areas where board members can get involved. So 
um, mm-hmm. my friends, Kathy and Josh, shout out Kathy and Josh, um, kind of put together a really long list of things that you can do at each of the four stages. So in the identification mm-hmm. phase, here are 15 different ways that a board member can help to identify potential donors. And then during the stewardship phase, here are 15 different ways or 20 different ways that a board member can help to steward a donor. So I think most board members get hung up on the asking part, but there's so much more to fundraising Mm -hmm. and the fundraising cycle than just asking. So I've actually um, used that as a way of kind of doing that board commitment form, but not just how much are you going to give? What campaigns do you want to give to this year? But also like here are all the various ways that you can get involved in our process, which of these appeal to you. And I think it helps educate board members on what what goes into giving beyond just making the ask, but it also opens up doors for things that maybe they didn't know they could even do. Like, you know, maybe they'd know somebody on the board of a local foundation and they never thought to make the introduction to us or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. Um, So yeah, I have a copy of that, um, that we can, we can throw both of those things in the show notes so that folks can check out our uh, board agreement forms that we've used in the past. But I think that's a really great way to help help board members understand their role in fundraising and also help them to feel engaged and really know that what they're doing is helpful (laughs) to the organization and they're really having an impact. Definitely. But let's talk about those board members who just don't want to get involved, right? There are some board members who are very traditional mm-hmm. in what they do and might not necessarily want to participate in one of those 15 steps uh, because they wrote their check and they're done, mm-hmm. which you shouldn't be, a, maybe you should be a donor. Yeah. Right. Like if you really don't want to engage and you really don't want to be part of the governing and the fiduciary responsibility of this organization, you just want to write a check. Uh, you know, I think that I think we had a conversation earlier in an earlier episode about egos um, and just wanting to be part of that board. This is a powerhouse board and I am part of it. And that's awesome. Like you can actually be on a committee. You can be on an ad hoc committee on the board. You don't actually have to own a seat that can be better used with someone else in it. Uh, have you ever had to deal with or work around something like that? Like what tips do you have? <laughs> So I think the best tip I have for that is we have a board responsibility, um, kind of an agreement, kind of a form. Um, We have everybody sign it every year and it's very clear about what your responsibility is as a board member. So it does go through like the governance pieces, the attendance at meetings pieces, um, the give or get policy as it's defined by our organization. But it makes it really clear that you're not just here to write a check and be done for the year. Like we are expecting you to have input in other areas. So I think that is really the first step is developing that, making sure your board is on board with that. Everyone is in agreement Mm -hmm. that that is something you need and that's going to be part of your culture as a board. That makes it a million times easier then to start having those conversations with the people who think they can just write a check and then check out for the rest of the year because they're going to be on the board. They're going to have to sign this agreement. If they sign this agreement, then they've stated they understand what their responsibility is as a board member. And if they're not doing everything within that role, then you have the grounds to kind of have a conversation with them and say like, hey, look, I know you really support our work and you really believe in our mission. And we so appreciate the support you give every year, but 
you're really not able to dedicate the time to our board that our board is requiring. So we're wondering if mm-hmm. you might consider stepping off the board and stepping onto this committee or you know, helping us to develop our major donor policy instead of serving as a board member or you know, finding, finding alternate ways to get that person involved. But it really, as much as I hate the fact that we have to rely on things like agreements and systems and, you know, all the things that are kind of white supremacist in nature in order to get our jobs done. It really does make it easier if you're trying to roll someone off the board who's not participating, if you have those backups in place. No, definitely. But, you know, I I can think of situations where, you know, cliques have been formed and, uh, that has been the case and it's like well that's my friend or that's my you know we play cricket together so you know there i think that if you're really holding to those responsibilities as to that responsibility form and you really have to have a board chair Mm -hmm. who is going to be able to really adhere and execute what's going to be needed to be done based on that form. I think that that is very um, integral to, to that process, which then brings me to board development. This is like really like flowing. <laughs> so board development, like you know, what are your tips for developing a board? And I mean, making sure that you are recruiting people and what, what is the recruitment process to really fulfill your board or to fill out your board? And how are you developing leadership within your board to get to that chair position? Because again, sometimes it's like, well, it's that person's time. It's like, okay, well, they've been on the board for this many years, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're a great leader to be at the chair position. Yeah, we, so, so we have a pretty diverse board at my current organization. Um, We do have folks with lived experience. We have folks who are working at other nonprofits that we partner with. Um, We have folks who have deeper pockets. We have folks who are, you know, lawyers and accountants and kind of cover all those bases as well. So we have a really good diverse group of people and voices at the table. But I think part of what I have been trying to focus on is making sure A, they understand their roles, but B, we're providing the supports that they need in order to Mm -hmm. feel like they're, um, you know, participating and feel the impact of their board membership, which I think can be harder for people who don't have a history of serving on boards or aren't familiar with the structure of a nonprofit and what their role might be as a board member. So really focusing on providing those opportunities, educational opportunities of, this is what it means to be a board member. This is what it means to participate in this campaign. This is exactly what we're going to need from you in order to execute this campaign. Here are the step-by-step instructions, which is more work for us, but it also helps to develop that strong relationship with the board member. So they really understand Mm -hmm. what you do and what your organization does and how they're a part of it, which makes them strong advocates for your organization, period. And we don't just have a board, we have committees of our board and the committees have non-board volunteers. So that's one way to develop leadership is if you have folks that you think may be a good fit down the road or might be a good fit now, you invite them to participate on a committee. And after a year or two of being on the committee, you kind of take a look back at their participation and their commitment and how much, you know, how much of a fit they might be for the board. And then you can start to have those conversations. And then within the board itself too, and especially with a board that has a lot of age diversity, helping Mm -hmm. to 
proctor those relationships a little bit between the board members who have been around a long time and the board members who are maybe newer um, and helping to, you know, either create mentorship relationships for them or like have them collaborate together on something that they may not normally have collaborated on so they can get to know each other and get to understand, you know, each other's backgrounds. And, you know, we can kind of have a little bit of that um, mentorship or growth opportunity. I have a lot to say on mm-hmm. this, the last one. Um, building, <laughs> <laughs> um, my biggest thing is though, is like building an inclusive space, like making sure that yeah. board members feel- A safe space. Yes, like they feel safe, they feel heard, they feel they feel like they're a part of something, especially with a diverse board, especially with people with lived experience who don't have a strong background in nonprofits or in board leadership, especially when you have those gaps. You have to make sure that everybody feels respected, everybody feels heard, everybody feels seen. Like you're not just convening once every two months to, you know, run through your agenda, but you're really creating that space for everybody to feel like they're, you know, having an impact and feel like they're participating in the board at the same level that their fellow board members are, which is interesting (laughs) to try and do that. And I can't say that we've always been successful or if I've always been successful at doing that, but I do think it's super, super, super important to do everything you can to build that space because that trickles down. If, If the board doesn't feel that way, then your executive staff won't feel that way. Then, then your line staff won't feel that way. So that was a lot. No, it just, it, it brought up, so when I was, oh goodness, I had to be like 16, 17, I was uh, recruited to be the junior board, a junior board member of this local CDC, and I was so excited, right, it was like my first like really big time adult, like, okay, I've always been in service to the community, but now I'm like on a board, but they really made me feel junior, right, and and not like, you're a junior, know your place. And like, okay, I'm a junior. But anytime I had an idea, it was really like, oh, how cute. So I'm like, oh, am I just supposed to sit here and just like smile and just make, again, and this is, you know, I'm about to be 40. So this is many moons ago. So even back then, it's like, especially back then, it's like they were checking off. Yes, we're including the community. We've got a underserved black woman, teen, you know, we've, we've checked all the boxes. We've checked age, we've checked race, <laughs> we've checked gender. Like we, we've checked all the boxes with her, but you she doesn't a have a voice. They got all the boxes with one person. All the boxes with one person and did not effectively utilize it Mm -hmm. other than to check a box. So that really makes me think about, especially in like an organization like yours, a previous organization, because I've worked with youth organizations. So I was that, you know, I was that youth. But in organizations where I guess the focus is more on charity, Right. Like they're not really trying to uplift the community, solve the problem. They're trying to just be fulfill a savior complex. When you have the person on the board that you're trying to save, how do you get around that? Like how how does one really shift the mentality of that organization, of that board to really be inclusive? enough to to value that opinion and not just be like oh <laughs> poor baby we gotta that's you know they're right we've got to help and not you know like how like, how do you do that 
I don't know that there's a good answer for that. And, and like I said, we're not, we're not perfectly doing this at my current organization. I don't think I've ever seen it perfectly done, but we are doing mm-hmm. it better here than I've seen it at other places. And I, I honestly think it has a lot to do with the people who are on the board. Um, so, so mm-hmm. our board members don't necessarily see themselves as different than people with lived experience or people who, you know, have gone through some of the same things that our participants have. And I, I'm sure that was intentional on our part in recruiting folks to our Awesome. Uh, But, but it, I've never really felt like I had to have the conversation with a board member, like, Hey, maybe you should be more respectful of this person's opinion because they have, you know, lived experience and they really know what they're talking about. I think there's that implicit respect of, someone's experience regardless of what that experience is so if they're you know a corporate lawyer and they really know what they're talking about on the legal stuff everybody on our board seems to just kind of accept that at face value and say like all right cool that's a lawyer that lawyer knows what they're doing if they say it's good for us we're gonna agree in the same way that somebody with lived experience can say hey you're piloting this new program and I have a concern about xyz based on my own experience with a program like that everybody again just kind of has that implicit respect to step back and say like all right cool so like you know what you're talking about we're going to trust you and let's let's work this out so it's a little bit of everybody kind of staying in their in their safety zone which is the part that I doesn't speak so well to me is like you're only allowed to speak if you know exactly what you're talking about which Mm, I think is a great place to be either and I don't necessarily think that's the environment we're in but I do think everybody kind of kind of does default to like, well, you know what you're talking about. You have experience with this. So I'm just going to shut up and let you be the one to advocate for this. And I would love to see a little bit more um, interaction and like, you know, comfort with, you know, like asking questions or pushing back on each other a little bit, or like having a little bit more of an in-depth discussion instead of just like, well, Val, you're the one with the lived experience with homelessness. What Mm -hmm. do you think about this new policy? So there's no perfect way to do it, but I do think that implicit respect of everyone's experience being valuable regardless of what that experience is and building that building that space is not easy (laughs) I wonder so how engaged is the board with the staff right because we go back to talking about you know having the lived experience and the learned experience in that space but if I am I'm just thinking like if I'm a board member and someone who was a program participant says to me that maybe they shouldn't implement that because I've had experience with this prior program. In my mind, I mean, that program could have been implemented anywhere, but that program was implemented with the same organization and those learnings or whatever that bad situation was or whatever it was, did not make it up to the board prior. And now here we are implementing a new one. If I'm a board member, I'm now looking at the staff like, WTF? Like, what are we doing? So I wonder, you know, you know, I worked in an organization where I think each quarter a different program leader kind of spoke with the board about whatever that program was doing. But at the same time, I don't know. I, I'm just always, I feel like I've always been around situations, whether in the organization, on the board level, outside looking in, where the board never gets the full picture. It's always roses, even though it's not like I'm not going to tell them that. But why not? Because they have a fiduciary responsibility to this organization. And like, even though you're the executive director, you still answer to them, but you don't want them to know the full truth of what we've, what you've done wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I'm just wondering, like, within your organization or organizations that you've been part of, how is the engagement between the actual board and the staff itself? Like minus management, right? Like skipping over because they're, they're the gatekeepers who was actually making it to the board. I've seen that from both sides. So <laughs> I've mm-hmm. been with an organization that um, the CEO was very controlling of what information got to the board. Everything was always roses. There were senior staff at board meetings, but what we were there to contribute was, was mm-hmm. I don't want to say policed, but it was, it was police. <laughs> police. Um, so we, we knew ahead of time, you know, like the, the things that we were there to say, the things that we were there to report on and what we could and could not comment on or bring up. And then on the flip side, um, my current organization, our board gets to see it all. <laughs> they get to see the good stuff, mm-hmm. but they also get to hear the challenges and they, they get to understand what we are going through as an organization, the areas where we're struggling, the areas where we need input and the areas where we're doing really well. So my current organization does a little bit of what you were saying. So every board meeting, we have a mission moment, which includes a different, you know, member of our staff from a different department that comes in and talks about what they do. And whenever we can, we include participants in that. And I know that sounds a little bit like making participants dance for their dollars, but (laughs) we do it in as an empowering way as we can. So the participants really understand what we're, what they're, what they're being celebrated for and why they've been mm-hmm. asked to speak to the board. And it's not because we want to hear a sob story for the board, but it's because they've done something that's worth commemorating or commendating. And we want to do that in front of our board. So mm. that's, that's kind of the way we approach it. We prepare them ahead of time. Um, we provide stipends to participants when they speak to the board. We usually provide a meal since our board meetings are in the evening. Um, and when we were meeting in person, we also provided transportation for that person. So we try to make it as easy as possible on the participant, but really it's because we want the board to hear directly from the staff on the ground and from the participants that are receiving services. So if there are concerns, if there are problems and our board is not afraid to ask those questions either. <laughs> like they, they usually say to the participant, like, so if you could change anything about the program, what would you change? Or, mm-hmm. you know, what, what kind of problems do you run into with your service coordinators? Or like, they really do get into the nitty gritty. And I've had participants, you know, air, air complaints and <laughs> maybe <laughs> complaints that didn't need to go to the board level, but they were asked and, and they right. answered and we weren't going to police the answer for them because they, you know, I mean, first of all, you can't jump across the room and say no when somebody starts to, you know, voice right. a complaint. Um, but also the fact that they're in the room to begin with and they're given the free license to say what's on their mind and, you know, they feel mm-hmm. like they can say like something like that in front of the board makes me feel more comfortable about the way we're having participants participate <laughs> in our board. Right. So I've seen it from both sides. I don't, I think it has a lot to do with the CEO's personality and the CEO's management style and how they are choosing to interact with the board because there are CEOs that inherently fear for their job and want the board as their boss to only hear good things so that their job Mm -hmm. is never in question. And then there are CEOs who truly want to lean on the expertise and experience of the board the way that they're supposed to to make the organization better. And there's people who follow along that spectrum too. So a lot of it has to do with how your CEO operates. 
So you said something that I think is key earlier, and that was you provide stipends mm-hmm. to your participants to speak, because I feel as though at that point, it's almost as if you are compensating someone for their expertise. Mm-hmm. And it's a lived expertise, right? So they're not actually dancing. They're being paid to provide their professional opinion, their personally professional opinion mm-hmm. on either how something was implemented or how they themselves are being impacted or their community being impacted. And I think that if we actually looked at participation, whether even if it's like, you know, we've got a parent advisory board, we've got an alumni advisory board, like you're asking people to volunteer and you're doing it more so for you than for them, then they should be compensated for their actual expertise that they're bringing to the table. Because in the end, it's helping you improve your organization and it's also helping you get more dollars in. Because how many grants now ask that question, right? Like, how are you involving people? Like, oh yeah, we have an advisory board. Great. What? Not what the goal is because everybody's got these lofty goals of what their alumni, participant, parent advisory board is. But what is actually happening within that advisory board? And how is it actually reflecting back within the work that you're doing and not just saying, oh, no, they took a survey, they aired out some grievances and we, you know, but did it change anything? Is it actually impacting the way that you operate? And if you're paying them for it on top of it, like one that we're really engaged now, but also you're not taking advantage of them and their expertise, especially a lot of times these, these people feel as though they owe something, right? Like if it wasn't for this program or it wasn't for this organization, it's like, no, like you shouldn't be doing this because you feel like you owe something back. That's great that you want to give back, but actually we need your expertise on what worked, what didn't work and what needs to happen in your community. So I think that that is a very interesting take that I don't think, I mean, yes, we provided pizza for participants and Chinese food and we've offered babysitting, but I don't know how often organizations actually compensate and provide stipends for things. And I think that that's something that we should probably all move towards because it's, it's their expertise. I'm a consultant. You just can't pull me into a conversation yeah. <laughs> and, and, and for free, right? Like sometimes I might do it pro bono, but like there's a bill coming if not. <laughs> yeah. And we, and I don't think I realized we did stipends when I first started here. Cause we didn't, we didn't really talk about it, but you know, like the, the service coordinator handles that, you know, but w- before they bring the participant in or after they bring the participant into the meeting or whatever. Um, but I did realize, um, we did our annual fundraiser a couple of months ago and we did um, pre-recorded interviews with a couple of participants. Our finance team came mm-hmm. to me and said, I saw a charge for a stipend that's larger than usual for a participant that I think was in the video that we did for the event. Is that, did, did you approve that? Like, it w- was that discussed? And I was like, I mean, I didn't approve it or discuss it, but also that man spent like four hours with our video crew across two different days. So and wow. the finance person immediately said like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Then, okay. That's why the stipend was bigger than normal. I'm just going to approve it. Um, but that, I love that there was no question about that. Like that was right. you know, our standard interview is like one to two hours and it was four hours and nobody even questioned it. They just automatically put in for a larger stipend than usual. Um, so, it, you know, it, it got the double check from finance, which is what they're supposed to do. But once right. finance heard the explanation, then it was like, oh yeah, okay, great. Never mind. <laughs> just delightful. Do you ever, when you're having board meetings and, you know, board members have these grandiose ideas, 
are there ever ideas that are just, I don't want to say far gone, but it's like, are you cutting a check to make that happen? Right. And, and if you do, like, are they cutting checks? Because yes, they have a responsibility and yes, you know, things have to sometimes pivot, you know, but sometimes I've just been in conversations where boys like, oh, we should be doing this, not really understanding like what that would take on the ground. So, you know, going back, I'm going to circle back to the, the fundraising and, and, the, and the dollars around it, you know, outside of that give get, are you or do, have you ever experienced board members that are just giving because they're like, I want to support this new idea? It's, it's my idea or it's just an idea that the CEO or ED somebody had that needs to be implemented. Here's the check to, to implement it. Yes, kind of. <laughs> you don't know that I've ever worked with a board that had deep enough pockets to just say like, yep, fully financed, here's your check. Um, but I have worked with boards who, they have the gamut of ideas, right? Like there's the there's the board member who's constantly like, why don't we just call Oprah? Like, you know, she likes, she likes kids. Wait, do you have Oprah's number? Yeah. <laughs> Can I, like, have I, it? I, have, I have learned that the response is, oh, great. So, you know, Oprah, can you put her in touch with us? Um, and a board member that I'm thinking of specifically, I'm just going to throw this out here as a tip because I know they're not the only one who did this, but they were convinced that there was a special sauce that we didn't have or that there was like a special thing that was happening at other organizations for fundraising that we just were missing out on. Like there was, there just, we must not be doing it right. There must be something we're missing. And I knew there wasn't, you know, I did. I feel like I spent years trying to convince this person, like, no, we're doing it. Like we're doing, we're doing all the things we're doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And they just wouldn't, they just wouldn't hear it when I said it. So I ended up calling a friend at another organization that this person admired and always said, you know, like, why don't we do what XYZ program is doing? And I'm like, yeah, we, we are. Um, so I finally called the friend that worked there at fundraising. I was like, can you do me like the biggest bro and just sit with this person for an hour and let them ask you questions. So the, the, the hour came and went, we walked out, we hit the street and the person looked at me and said, I don't think there's a special sauce. Like, I, I think we're doing everything <laughs> we're supposed to be doing. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's what I've been trying to tell you. Um, so anyway, I digress. So there are people who have unhelpful suggestions or just think that we're missing something, but the people who have suggestions that do align with our mission and do align with our programming, I have seen um, a board uh, that I worked with, with a youth organization a couple of years ago, they were really hearing from our staff and recognizing in general in our community the need for more supports for LGBTQ youth. So they took it upon themselves to create a separate committee, create a campaign. They gave themselves, they helped out with fundraising campaigns for that specifically so that there could be more funding for LGBTQ youth who are experiencing homelessness. And that was huge because we did need funding for that and they saw it and they recognized it. They, they kind of thought it was their idea, which is fair because we kept presenting information to them at board meetings. So they knew it was a problem. Um, but they really took it upon themselves. Like they were, that was the most active mm -hmm. campaign I've ever had with board members. Like they came out to events, they gave, they introduced us to their friends. Like they, they really went for it. And then, you know, the board I work with now, like not so many people with deep pockets. So they do have those ideas and they do want to see them happen and they're willing to do what they can, but they don't necessarily have the means to say, 
here's a hundred thousand dollars. Let's make it happen. So I think if they had a hundred thousand dollars, they would, <laughs> they just maybe don't have those means. Are they making connections though, to get it done though? When they can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I think the LGBTQ community is on, on our, our board's mind as well. Um, because you know, LGBTQ folks experience homelessness at a much higher rate than non-LGBTQ mm-hmm. folks. So it's kind of the same thing. Like we, they're, the recognition of the need is there and the ideas to try and do something to help it are there, but we're not quite to the point where we have enough resources to specifically create a team to do that. Um, that said, are they trying to make connections and are they trying to connect us to people who can help us make that happen? Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I mean, I've been, I, I think I've been on both sides of that where I've been on, I've been at an organization with a real powerhouse board with those kind of pockets where they've, here's a million dollar endowment or here's, you know, things like that. Um, which is, which is good and bad because, because they're like, here's the check. Now you're like, now we've got to do something because they wrote a check, you know, and now, and now we, and now we have to actually um, do something which was not part of our strategic plan, which now means we've got to do new staff and new programming. So there's a good and a bad with it, which is a delicate balance, (laughs) especially with dealing with board members. But, you know, I think that, you know, that's a sign of engagement at least uh, for, for, you know, take it for what it's worth. And I think that, you know, again, circling back around to, to the commitment of the board, I think a lot of what it takes is meeting them where they're at, right? Like, don't force things on them. Don't force them to participate in things that they don't want to, because that's not going to turn out well for, for anyone. They're not really going to be engaged. It's not going to be as successful. But also, you know, meeting them where they're at and making sure that, you know, they're engaged to the point where they're giving, they're supporting campaigns, they're supporting programming where where they're able to, so that it's authentic and might actually lead to further engagement and commitment and dollars, um, and even maybe even more potential board members because they bring in friends or you know there might be a, a young a young board member or a young donor who looks up to that board member and gets involved. Um, so I think that if you're authentically engaging people where they're, where they need to be and where they want to be engaged, I think that works out not only for the organization, but for that person as well. How about you? Any final thoughts? So I agree a thousand percent. And I think with board engagement, you know, it's especially that relationship building. So Mm-hmm. I remember when I first joined this board and I was getting to know all the board members and I sat down and, you know, had coffee with them or had a meal with them and just wanted to get to know them as human beings and what their interests were and what they do for jobs. And um, a couple of them said to me, like, this is really nice. No one's ever done this with us before. And then I also, you know, we, one of our fundraisers is artists take things from our furniture bank and turn them into works of art and we auction them off. And I remember sitting with one of the board members when I first started and they were asking me, what is that event? I've never really participated in it before. And I was explaining it and they were like, oh, well, how do you find artists? I was like, we just post on social media and say, we need artists. And they said, oh, well, I have a friend at the Philadelphia Museum of Art who might be able to do like a guest curation thing. Is that of interest? Like, hell yeah, I want that. Yeah. Yes. 
And then they said, well, I also know a lot of artists. Like I actually used to consult for artists and help them like build their portfolios and build their presence what? online. And I was like, oh my God, like we need to talk. How more. are you not chairing this committee for this? Exactly. <laughs> like how are you not leading this? And you know, the, the guest curator that they brought in ended up joining the board. He's a freaking rock star. So is she like, and I just, that one conversation over coffee yep. has turned into like years of engagement and more people and yep. more support and more growth for this event. And had I not sat down with all of our board members and had that coffee, I probably would have never known because that's not their current role. That was a role that right. they had previously. So like, how would I have known that she knew a lot of artists locally? Um, so yeah, definitely like engage and build relationships with your board members, because that's the only way mm -hmm. you're going to be able to really like make them feel heard and help them feel like they're having an impact, but also get what you need out of that relationship. As I said, you gotta, you have to sit down with each and every one of them and have that conversation. I know, you know, on our forum, I always leave a other, right? Because I want to know, like, what do you do? Like this, I, I did not think of everything this year that could be done that you can be engaged in. What do you want to bring to this? What are you interested in? So you really, the engagement with the organization starts with that one-on-one -on -one relationship building, you know, with the, with the development director, you know, or with the ED or however that goes, which also makes me think about this course that I did for UAC's Coalition U. I think it's on YouTube and I'll, I'll put it in the link too, but it's a three-step it's called E3. It's a, it's a three-step process about how to really engage your board. So I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Perfect. So you were fire with the questions today. I can't, uh, I can't wait for our next episode to hear your fiery questions about um, the CFRE. Oh, you know, they're, you're going to be, they're going to be fire. <laughs> they're going to be fire. I actually have a lot of fire questions about the CFRE too, but um, we are excited. We have a guest who's going to be on our July episode talking about the CFRE with us. Um, her name's Erin Morton. She's Senior Director and De of Development and Strategic Partnerships for the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity through Thomas Jefferson Hospitals. And Monique does not have a CFRE. I do. We'll talk about why <laughs> during our next episode. And Erin is is debating getting a CFRE. So um, hopefully between the three of us, we can come to some kind of consensus or at least answer some fiery questions for you. Or agree to disagree. <laughs> it's okay. We'll see what happens. <laughs> well, until next time, again, contribute to the conversation, you know, share your thoughts, share your questions on what it takes to really engage a board. Um, you can do so on Anchor, leave us a message. But until next time, this has been Beyond Philanthropy.